0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. There's no question that stories of vengeance, revenge, and comeuppance are ubiquitous in the arts. But in today's historical narrative, we'll see what happens when someone faces someone that has done them incredible wrong, and they have all the power of the world at their fingertips. Which, of course, lends the question, what might we do if we found ourselves in a similar situation? Someone who's tormented us, wronged us, truly sinned against us, and we suddenly have them completely under our power Now, today's title is Joseph, God's Sovereignty and Substitute. And you're going to need the Pew Bible today. It's page 42 through page 46. So please take a Pew Bible near you. Because today's historical narrative is so riveting, we're going to read a lot of it. In in fact, I feel kind of like this week, we're just going to read a lot of the text, and I'll give a couple comments here and there because it's such an incredible narrative for us this morning. So here's my role today to communicate God's Word, hopefully in a way that's effective. Most importantly, because it's faithful to God's Word, but then also helpful to us. Here's what I'm going to do, and and these are not on notes for you anywhere. So if you're a note taker, this will help you. I'm going to give you four applications as we work through the chapters we're going to work through. So at the end of a chapter, I'll stop and say, this is our first, second, third, and fourth. Those are the four. And then at the very end, we'll do a big picture of what those four mean and how they can be applied. Okay, So just four, and then at the end, how they can be applied. We're going to begin in the text by bringing up to speed a collision course. We as the reader, if you've been here the last couple Sundays, we know what's been going on with Joseph in Egypt. But don't forget, none of his family does. So they sold him into slavery when he was 17 years old. You may remember why Jacob had favored Joseph And that hatred that had been brewing bubbled over and exploded when Joseph revealed two divinely given dreams. The dreams revealed that Joseph's own brothers and family would bow down to him. At that point, his brothers couldn't take it anymore. They said they had murderous hatred in their hearts for him. And then they got opportunistic and they decided to sell him. When they sold him to passing by Ishmaelite slave traders, they had no idea that he would live, or where he would live, or surely they would ever see him again. And just to make sure you understand what's happening, it's been over 20 years since then. So here we are over 20 years later, and God ordains a famine, and we as the reader know that Jacob has become, in effect, the most powerful person in the known world. He's second only to Pharaoh, but he wields all of that authority. So look in Genesis 42 now. Now we're in chapter 42. And we pick up in verse 1. When Jacob, this is of course Joseph's father, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why, why do you look at one another? Verse 2, he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And we can feel the drama building. I mean, they're on their way to Egypt. We know who's in charge of the food there. What's going to happen? But before that drama culminates, don't miss the fractured family of Joseph. Look in verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Now, re- remember, all that Jacob knows to be true is that Joseph has been killed by an animal. That's what his sons have told him. We of the readers, of course, know that's not what happened. But Jacob still thinks so warily of his other sons that he at least assumes Benjamin would be in danger if he's in their custody outside of his sight, which reveals a lot about the family dynamics they have. So verse 5, Thus, the sons of Israel, the other name for Jacob, came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Egypt. Now, don't forget, not only have Joseph's brothers and father long forgotten for him over 20 years. But didn't you notice what our brother just read? Joseph named his first child Manasseh because he, too, had forgotten his family and all the hardships that he experienced there. So nobody here is picturing any reunion at all. But now verse six. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him. So what would you do? You've all the power in the world at your fingertips. And the people who have ruined your life are now bowing prostrate before you. He treated them like strangers. He recognized them. They, of course, didn't recognize him. It's been over 20 years and he looks like an Egyptian and he's not speaking Hebrew. He's speaking through an interpreter. So he spoke roughly to them through an interpreter. Where do you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And here we have a dawn of that fulfillment of God's revelation Many years prior that his own family members would come and bow before him. But now Joseph will do something important. He'll examine their character. So verse 9 continues. He said to them, You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. And everyone laughed out loud. At that. <laughs> your servants have never been spies. The funny thing about them claiming to be honest men is they think, well, surely no one could know whether or not we're honest except for this one brother that we got rid of a long time ago. Of course, he's the one there. Verse 12, He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. then that one speaks in verse 14. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies by this, and this is important, you shall be tested. So now everything that's going to follow that Joseph will do, it's important that we understand, is not vindictive, which will become clearer and clearer as the passage goes on, but is necessary examination of their character and whether or not it's changed. So by this you shall be tested. You shall, by the life of Pharaoh, not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there's truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now, verse 18 picks up. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God, if you are honest men. Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go. Carry grain for the famine for your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. So for three days, they're sweating it out in a cell. Now they have this option. We can leave one of our brothers, Simeon, and we can go free. What will they do? Well, you know what's interesting is the first thing they think is the sin we committed 20 years ago is the sin that we're being punished for now. Now, we know, especially if you've been here, they've committed many other sins. But this one has haunted them and stuck with them. It has shadowed their whole life. Look in verse 22. Reuben said, did not, I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Their whole life has now been shaped by their sinfulness against their own brother. As they debate this in Hebrew, they don't realize that Joseph can understand them. And so Joseph, when he overhears them, we see in verse 24, turns away from them and weeps. He understands that they are still remembering life through the way they sinned against him. And so Joseph keeps Simeon in custody and sends the brothers on their way. Excuse me. (laughs) And when he sends them on their way, He secretly puts the money in their bags. As they make their way back, they discover that money is in the bag. And so now look in verse 28. One of the brothers said, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this notice that God has done to us? They believe this is the day of reckoning. Now it's all come to fruition. But as if it was bad enough that one brother found money, look down at verse 35 of Genesis 42. And they emptied their sacks, their bags. Behold, every man's bundle of money was in his bag. So when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. At this point, the brothers have returned to Jacob. They've told Jacob all that happened with this strange Egyptian man who seemed to really test them and and accuse them of being spies, but now they're scared to death because they've come home. And all of them still have the money that they thought they had given for the food that they've taken. Verse 36, Jacob's response is noteworthy. Jacob, their father, said to them, "'You've bereaved me of my children.'" Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. I've read a number of scholars as I've prepared during the weeks for these sermons, of course, and they're about split here as to whether or not uh, Jacob is given into fatalistic resignation or whether or not he's finally accepting that things are out of his control. Uh, The Lord alone knows his inner motives. But what the text makes at least unambiguously clear is that Jacob is grieved, I don't know what to do. But what's interesting, notice how he describes Simeon with the same words as Joseph, thus expecting that Simeon is a lost cause and assuming that Benjamin will be as well. Well, Reuben steps forward in verse 37, and this explains a lot about the dynamics of Reuben with his dad and helps us understand the family further. Notice verse 37, Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons. If I do not bring him back to you, what a self-centered and evil form of leverage. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. This is not heroic willingness. This is sinful posturing. But what would Reuben be sinfully posturing for? Do you remember? Genesis 35, we read that Reuben had actually sinned grievously against his father by sleeping with one of his father's wives, his stepmother, The dynamic then between father and son had never been right. Doesn't this help you better understand why Reuben was willing to get Joseph out of the pit earlier? What we see actually throughout the entire arc of Genesis 37 to Genesis 50 is that Reuben's efforts are really all trying to ingratiate himself back to the status of firstborn. Remember, in the Old Testament era, firstborn receives the double portion. The closest thing we have today in our culture is like a will. Someone trying to ingratiate themselves to a position of inheritance. In fact, we know this for sure because in Genesis 49, when this story comes to its conclusion, Jacob still condemns Reuben for his selfish sin. So verse 38 and 37 don't view these as heroic. They're actually meant to be a contrast against what will truly be heroic in the chapters that follow. So verse 38, Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to show. So we're just reading through the chapters today. We're going to work through the text and it's going to culminate beautifully. And we're going to pick up four applications on the way. Here's our first application on the way. Now that we're done with chapter 42, here's the first application. The power of a guilty conscience. The power of an aggrieved conscience. William Shakespeare put it this way in King Henry VI. Suspicion always haunts a guilty mind. But my favorite is King Solomon. uh, Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked man flees when no one pursues. The wicked flees when no one pursues. See, these brothers... And this family is haunted by sin that hasn't been forgiven, hasn't been reconciled, hasn't been atoned. Such is the nature of sin. You and I need to acknowledge that as well in our own life. Sin, unless it's atoned, has guilt that can't be assuaged. In fact, in our culture, we spend a significant amount of money to try to suppress our guilt, but never successfully because we understand guilt has a vertical dimension. Guilt is an objective reality because of something that's truly been done wrong. So left hanging over chapter 42 is how can an aggrieved conscience be alleviated? And it isn't answered in chapter 42. Perhaps you can relate to the brothers. The sweat and nervousness that overcomes you when this sense that this thing that you thought was far behind you could now finally fall back on you? How can that be taken care of? Well, praise God, the chapters will give us an answer. So let's keep moving. We're going to pick up in chapter 43 now. I'll just summarize to you verses 1 through 7. Starvation proves to be very powerful motivation because Jacob goes from saying, nobody's going back to Egypt to You guys need to go back to Egypt because we don't have anything to eat. But he still is concerned about Benjamin going back for Simeon. So notice now in verse 8, Judah, of all the brothers, Judah steps forward. Verse 8, Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. Verse 9, the the Hebrew is pretty strong because it adds an additional pronoun in front of the verb. So it's like Judah is saying, I personally, I myself. So verse 9, I personally, I myself will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. We'll see more on Judah later. It's amazing here that Judah, of all the brothers, has stepped in. And so the brothers, now with Israel, Jacob's blessing, do make their way back. Jacob, always the people-savvy person, has them bring back gifts, bring back double the money, do anything they can so that it goes well with this scary Egyptian man. And so verse 15, So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and they took Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So follow with me now for a long section. Look in God's Word in Genesis 43, verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So for the brothers, it feels like high noon. (laughs) This is now the opportunity where we're going to be exposed. All of it's going to come crashing down on us. So they do something good in verse 19. They go to Joseph's steward. They confess the whole situation. We came home. We found money. We're really sorry. Look in verse 23. The steward replies to them, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. That would be quite a (laughs) head-scratcher. You've now confessed that you found the money. He says, no, it's it's all okay. So they're bewildered and totally off. And then he brought Simeon out to them. So verse 24. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet when he had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat bread there. Now verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down their heads and prostrated themselves, again fulfilling the dream. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? Now, you might be thinking, why would he ask, is this... Benjamin, but don't forget, Joseph was sold into slavery when he was only 17. Benjamin very likely would have been a boy still at that time, and it's been over 20 years since. Benjamin, as you no doubt remember from your own yearbook photos, looks very different than he would have 20 years ago. So the text continues. Joseph says, God be gracious to you, my son, verse 30. But then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and then by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with them ate with themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. In Egypt in that time, just to give you a little background, there was a separation both by culture and by caste. So by your standing socially, politically, but also by your race ethnically. Egyptians did not mix with other ethnic races, which will become a big story in the book of Exodus. But also not by rank, and so Joseph outranked them. And so they're all split. But in God's providence, that's actually perfect for the event that's about to happen. Verse 33, And they sat before him, notice this, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, And the men looked at one another in amazement. If they weren't afraid before, (laughs) they're now seated by birth order. Some geek figured this out for us. He he explained that with that many brothers, there are 39,917,000 different orders that they could have been seated. But here they are seated perfectly by order of birth. The brothers are scared to death now. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Now you might be thinking, why is that? Is Joseph being sinful? Perhaps, but I think it's more likely he's testing how they will treat Benjamin if he's given more than the rest. Wouldn't Joseph know how badly that can go for these ten? So the text continues. They drank and they were merry with him. But now let's pick up in chapter 44. Once again, Joseph has the money slipped into their sacks of grain. But now verse 3, when they go to take off, Joseph tells the steward to overtake them. So let's pick up in verse 6 of Genesis 44. When the steward overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words? Why do you accuse us of taking the money? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? And then they make this promise in verse 9. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. So the steward said in verse 10, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack of grain to the ground, and each man had it opened. Verse 12, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the drama builds, and notice, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. The one person that Jacob said, you can't lose him, is the one who has a silver cup in his sack of grain. And so they all return. What will happen next? Verse 14, When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, Joseph was still there, and they fell before him to the ground, again fulfilling the dream. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? He's really messing with them now. Verse 16, And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? Notice what Judah says. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, the pronouns really matter here. Judah says, Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he, also in whose hand the cup has been found. That is not at all how they treated Joseph. Verse 17, But Joseph said to Judah, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. So only Benjamin needs to stay. The rest of you can go. And now we have the climax of Judah's redemption. Verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, So now Judah draws near. And in verses 18-23, through Judah recounts all the conversation that they had had with Jacob. The promise that he had made that he would bring back Benjamin even at cost of his own life. After he recounts it, He says this in verse 29, quoting his dad. If you take this one from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. So now notice what Judah says in verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, Then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to show. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant Judah remain instead of the boy, Benjamin, As a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah's change of character here is incredible. In verse 17, Joseph gave him the opportunity to skate free, and he didn't take it. In the following verses, he recounted the historical facts accurately, rather different from Jacob the deceiver. He stepped forward individually in front of a person who could snap his fingers and have him executed. But then he shows concern for his dad's well-being. He keeps his promise to offer his own life and he stands by it, giving himself in the place of Benjamin. So here we see Judah, who has now become servant of the father, substitute for the brother, leader who will lay down his own life. So we're ready for two more big takeaways. The first one was the power of an aggrieved conscience. But now number two, examination precedes reconciliation. Now this one's very important for all of us, especially for those of us who have a loved one that's in a habitual or habit-forming sin problem. We learn much from Joseph here, don't we? You see, it's important to know from the Bible that you can forgive, and indeed we must forgive anyone, whether or not we actually reconcile with them, we must forgive But in order for reconciliation to happen, we learn from Joseph that examination precedes reconciliation. Joseph is right to see whether or not they would give up Benjamin in the same way they gave up him. To see whether or not their character has changed. You and I perhaps have loved ones in our own family who have fallen into an addictive sin pattern and we find ourselves asking, what do we do? How do we find out if they're truly ready for reconciliation? Let me give you two questions that I think we see in this passage that are so important to ask. We could ask that loved one, are you just as characterized by that sin pattern today as you were in the past? How would those who know you best attest to that? By the way, this is a great question for you and I in terms of our relationship with God. Will we always sin in this life? Yes. But does our sin characterize us just as much much as it did 20 years ago? I pray not. Here over 20 years have passed. Joseph is right to see, have you changed at all? A second fair question would be, how would you respond then under the crushing weight of a moral dilemma? So here they are facing this crushing moral dilemma. Now let's see what is exposed in it. So the big takeaway, number one, the power of a guilty conscience. Big takeaway, number two, examination precedes reconciliation. But now big takeaway, number three, rejoice in God's power to transform people. Yes, it's fair to examine before reconciling. But of course, we have to admit That trust can never finally be earned because no one's perfect. So it must be granted based on real progress that's seen by transforming power. Here's what we should rejoice in. Do you remember what a wreck Judah was before? Look at what God has done in him now. If you have a loved one that you care for, that you've prayed for, that you find yourself saying, can God actually ever transform them? Praise God and his power to transform the chief of sinners. Here now Judah is leading his brothers. Judah's not the firstborn. He's not the secondborn. He's He's the fourthborn. There's nothing about his birthright that should put him in a position of influence. The last time Judah spoke up to the brothers, it was so that he could sell Joseph. Now he steps forward and speaks up so that he can give his own life for the baby brother. And who loves the baby brother? (laughs) Judah went from deceiving his father to pledging to give his life for the father. Praise God. We shouldn't be surprised that when we get to the end of Genesis, the promised line of the Messiah doesn't come through Joseph. It comes through Judah. Because he's the one who magnifies him here. Well, now in Genesis 45, the story climaxes in every possible way. So pick up with me in God's Word in Genesis 45, verse 1. Well, then Joseph could not control himself because of the way he saw Judah offer himself. Joseph cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I don't think Hebrew or English could convey how shocked and horrified they were. Maybe we might say it this way. Are you kidding me? You're still alive, and you're the guy in power of our life? No one spoke among the brothers at that moment. Verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plow nor your harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph, better than many of us, has a clear understanding of degrees of ultimacy, and at the top of the ladder is always God. This does not in any way mean that Joseph thinks they're not damnable for their evil. In fact, he'll say this to them in chapter 50, What you did, you meant for evil against me, but God for good. It just means that Joseph understands who is sovereign over all this and that he's working out a big plan. Look in verse 15. Joseph kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after that his brothers talked with him. This is so important for us to understand. If you think theology is dry and has no difference in your life, I think you're badly mistaken, and Joseph shows us this. We must understand how God's sovereignty works in accord with human actions that are still damnable. If we can understand that, it'll change our life. See, Joseph doesn't say this. He, he doesn't say, you guys did something and God missed it, but then when God saw that you did it, God made a counter move, and he like turned your bad thing and he turned it in the right direction. No, God's not reacting at all. There's no counter move. There's no, like, you put pawn here and I put rook here. No, God doesn't need to react. Here's what Joseph actually says, what the Bible actually teaches. In the one singular act that Joseph's brothers did evil, in that same act, God did good. In one singular event, there are two different parties with two different intentions. Don't you know that's how life works? Humans are freely fulfilling an intention. God is sovereignly working His good plan simultaneously. So let me ask you a question. This is takeaway number four. Extend God's forgiveness. Takeaway number four. Here's the question for you. Does your theology, does your worldview, does your belief system enable you to forgive like Joseph just forgave his brothers? And before you quickly say, well, yeah, sure. Who do you struggle forgiving? And don't you realize that the reason you struggle forgiving them is because unlike Joseph, you don't realize that that act of evil is God's intention of good. If you struggle with that concept, look at where they meet on the cross. The complicit evil of the crucifiers, the grace of God to save them. One act, two intentions. See, theology matters. The ability to forgive is grounded on our grasp of God's goodness, even in evil done against us. In fact, now as Joseph prepares to have his own father come, in chapter 45, verses 16 through 24, I'll just summarize them. In those verses, Pharaoh has such a high view of Joseph that he makes him, makes him bring wagons so that they can Bring back Jacob in style and in panache. But notice how even reconciliation doesn't mean there's no more need for growth. So look in verse 24 of chapter 45. Then Joseph sent his brothers away and they departed and Joseph said to them, do not quarrel on the way. (laughs) So he still knows that there's reconciliation, but this is still a particular struggle for you. Verse 25 though, so they went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he's ruler over all the land of Egypt, and Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel, Jacob said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive and I will go and see him before I die. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll follow that reunion. It's beautiful. But today, let's review our four big applications and then we're going to zoom out to the big picture of Genesis and how they work. Here's what they were. Maybe you wrote them down already. Number one, the power of a guilty conscience. Number two, examination precedes reconciliation. Number three, rejoice in God's power to transform people. Number four, extend God's forgiveness. But if you have those four, there's still a question hanging over us. How can those four work? (laughs) You know, how can I get rid of guilt? Number one, how could I ever be examined truly and be reconciled when I still fail? Number three, how could I transform And number four, how could I have the power to forgive those who've really sinned against me? And that's where we get to build to what this text has been showing us the whole time. In fact, throughout Genesis, we keep seeing this pattern of a sovereign God of sinful people, but a God who will save sinners through a substitute. In today's passage, it was vivid with Judah, but it's also vivid with the fact that the whole world is starving and God has... Pur- purposefully put Joseph as the center of the earth so that the world can go to him, the substitute who can feed him. You know, I think we miss this in in Joseph. I was listening to uh, 105.7 on the way home this, this week and a preacher was preaching through Joseph and he did what so many preachers do when they preach through Joseph and it just broke my heart. I cannot stand the way American preachers preach through Genesis. See, Joseph is not a Cinderella story. He's not a Rocky Balboa story. He's not a rags-to-riches story. Yet almost every American pastor preaches Genesis as, you see, if you're a good boy, you'll be rich and healthy one day. You see, if you bide your time, then one day you'll have power and prominence. Which means they've missed the entire purpose of this historical narrative. Joseph himself says, "He notice Joseph did not say to his brothers, I'm so glad that now I'm on top. Now Joseph says to his brothers, God used your evil so that He could save you. See, Joseph's very argument is that God caused Joseph to suffer so that He could through him save lives and so that through their family's line one day He could save souls. So really completely unlike the way American pastors preach Genesis, actually Joseph says the suffering is the main part. And did you notice that by the end, even through all the suffering, God saves the brothers by grace and grace alone. Did you notice, did you keep track, they never paid for a single piece of grain. Every time they go back, The money that they thought they could offer turned out to have been provided anyway by God's mediator. Don't you know that's how the book of Revelation ends? Revelation ends by saying, come those of you who thirst, come those of you who are hungry and receive water without price and receive food without price. Now maybe you grew up being told by your parents, hey, nothing in life is free. and Your parents were right. It's just that someone else paid for it. Who paid for the grain that all the world gets? Joseph, through all his suffering, who pays for the eternal water and eternal food? Jesus through the cross. See, the point of Joseph is not how you can advance in your career. The point of Joseph is how we can be humbled by a God who provides what we don't deserve. It's a story of salvation through a substitute. And that salvation comes when we acknowledge our sin so that we can be reconciled. Joseph's brothers have to finally confess what had haunted them their whole life. We sold you. We don't deserve anything. But God alone can provide the salvation we need. I fear that in our culture, it's so hard for us to believe that God gives a gift that we don't contribute to positively in any way We can't buy it. We can't purchase it. We tend to come like Joseph's brothers with double the good works, double the currency, and we find out actually that, no, it's already been provided. I have a wild imagination, and I was thinking this week, you know how like at dinners or convocations, the way humans celebrate other humans, and when a human gets up to speak and they tell you all the things that's so important about this human, what if we did that with the rich man and Lazarus? Let's have a little fun. So it's a convocation dinner, and we're getting ready to speak, and the first speaker is the rich man. The rich man holds a Ph.D. from a university that must be prestigious because it's in Europe somewhere. He's a two-time medalist in something that you've never seen. He's a CEO of three businesses. Don't look up what they're trading at today. He was a who's who of who's that for many years. He was a respected society member for philanthropy, philanthropy. He was an influencer with millions of followers on cyberspace. He received numerous awards from the academy, from the society, from the players, from the coaches. He was a contributing editor in an important and influential magazine. He's received honorary doctorates. He's had his face on the cover of every Rising Faces cover you could have it on. Everybody notices the Richmond. But the second speaker is introduced. His name is Lazarus. He's a sinner saved by grace. Lazarus will be speaking tonight from Jesus' side, and no one can remember the rich man's name. See, the way the Bible actually ends is exactly the way Genesis 45 ends. The brothers come bowing down before God's mediator. And Revelation ends with every tribe and every tongue and every nation saying, worthy is the Lamb. Who was slain? See, there's no one there who bought it except the lamb who shows the cost on his body. So please do not read Joseph as a story about how we can get on top. Read Joseph as a story about how God, through a substitute, saves sinners by grace alone. And then you'll understand the four points. The first one, what can assuage guilt? The only answer, a substitute who bears my punishment. The second, how could I ever be examined and reconciled? The answer, only if somebody else's perfect record is put in my place. The third, how can I be empowered to transform? The answer, only if somebody else's supernatural strength is granted to me. The fourth, how could I ever forgive those who've wronged me? only as God through Christ has forgiven me. The point of Genesis is a salvation through a substitute, and Joseph and Judah merely show us that. Let's look to the Lord now and thank him for that substitute. Dear God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you are so gracious and so good that you have sent a substitute to save us. Lord, help us to bow the knee in praise and recognition for God's salvation. Lord, I thank you that we see pictures of it woven through this historical narrative, a narrative that would have been one of the best known for Israelites for thousands of years. As they grew up as children, they would have heard about Joseph and they would have heard about Judah. And in that, you were showing them how you would provide Jesus. A substitute who would willingly lay down his life for the undeserving. A mediator who would feed what we could not get at a cost that he paid himself. Lord, as Joseph suffered unjustly in prison, it reminds us how Jesus suffered unjustly on the cross. And Lord, to you be all glory for a substitute who would save us. I pray that perhaps someone this morning would cry out, Lord, forgive me and save me on the basis of what Jesus has done in my place. But Lord, may we know those of us who have called out on the name of the Lord to be saved. May we extend forgiveness like people who've been saved. May we, Lord, have our guilt taken away like people who know that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins because we have an advocate with the Father. So why be self-condemning when Christ has paid it? Lord, may we also know what it's like to know that we will be presented blameless before the throne of God. We sang that today, but do we feel it in our heart? And Lord, may we feel the power of true transformation because it is Christ in us the hope of glory. So give us faith in your ability to take those that seem impossible and then, Lord, turn them in the way you changed Judah. And give us confidence in what you will continue to do because you are the God who has sent the bread of life and the eternal water to provide fully what we need. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scalley pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcralheigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.